Today's gospel lesson is found in John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the New Testament lesson is 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The word of the Lord. Let's stand together and sing in response to the reading of the word. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He. Of the things that are that have been And that future you shall see Evermore and evermore This is he whom have taught singers Sang of old with one accord, whom the scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Now he shines the long expected. Let creation praise its Lord evermore and evermore. May be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let me start by um, praying for us, okay? Father, we ask now um, that you would help all of us who are in here to find um, that those words that we sang are true, that you are indeed our source and our ending. You are the source and ending. You're the goal of all of life. Father, that somehow we'd be able to, in the situations that we find ourselves in, be able to pierce into that mystery and see it clearly, that you'd use these words that we're going to read and talk about together to show us the grace of Jesus coming to us, for us, um, that we would see that grace and that we, we would be changed by it. So meet every one of us, Father, um, those of us who are in faith and those of us who are outside of faith, 
those of us who feel close to you and those of us who feel really, really far from you. Meet every one of us and show us the grace of Jesus. And we prayed in his name. Amen. Well, if, you, uh, if you've been around Covenant even for just a little while, you have probably noticed that our worship follows a certain rhythm every single week. And if you've been here a little bit longer, you know that that weekly rhythm is itself ordered by something larger um, called the church year. And we follow the ancient calendar of the church for lots of reasons. And one of the reasons that we do that is because it is a way for us to be able to reflect on the life of Jesus in all of its fullness um, and to reflect on it for, for ourselves and for the world. So as, as we have already seen and sung and read and prayed and heard this morning, this is the first day of Advent. And actually in the church year, this is the first day. This is New Year's Day in the church year. And this season of Advent is all about longing. It's all about anticipation. It's all about hope. So my guess is that some of you probably make uh, New Year's resolutions at the beginning of January. Uh, and when you do that, here's what you're doing. You're longing for something more. You're longing for something better. You're anticipating uh, the change that will come or you're anticipating how you will feel when that better comes. And that's not unlike um, what Advent is about, ex except there's one really, really, really important difference. And that is that our resolutions for the more and for the better are usually based on half-baked promises that we make to ourselves. They're usually rooted in our own willpower or gumption or something like that. But at Advent, our longing and our anticipation for the more and the better is rooted in the deepest resolve of God himself. And that longing for the more and the better are sure because he has promised them to us. So for my money, that's a way better way of looking at a new year. So happy New Year's Day. Happy Advent. And this is what I want us to think about together as a people during this season of Advent. I want you to think about what it is that you're, you're facing in your life that may be difficult, what you're facing in your life that may be um, hard or scary, um, what you are looking at in the world that you wish was different, and maybe you're wondering about your place in that. I want you to think about those things, and I want us all together to ask, how does the incarnation of Jesus speak to that thing? How does the incarnation of Jesus, how does Jesus coming to be one of us speak to those things? I promise you that it does. It's just not always easy to see how. And part of us growing up as Christian people is learning how to make those connections, learning how to see, as the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthian church, learning how to see how God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. All things, that means everything. Even the stuff that you and I are facing right here this morning. Learning how the incarnation reconciles those things to God requires prayer and thought and a deep reading of scripture. So we're going to start that this morning um, by looking together at Isaiah 2. So I'm going to read that for us, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. And you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Isaiah 2. 
the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Well, I have to tell you um, that every once in a while, um, Allison, my wife, will take me aside and um, give me some helpful pointers on uh, being a parent. And I have to tell you that this, I know this makes her uncomfortable when I talk about uh, her in a sermon like this, but this is the only way I can think that we can all get to benefit together from who Allison is. So the other day, um, I was talking to one of my girls um, about something she had done um, that was not great. And while I was talking to her, I was doing what I often do, which is being really caught up in the present moment, caught up in the thing that had happened and the results of the thing that had happened. I was harping on what she had done, and I was harping on the effects of what she had done, and I was harping on how what she had done had unsettled the present and about how what she had done generally didn't speak that well of her. If that all sounds like code language for me being a jerk, you're definitely onto something. So after it was all over, Allison took me aside and she reminded me about something uh, really important. She reminded me that a better approach is often to talk about our hopes and our expectations for the future. She told me it might be better to talk about the things that we know that our kid can do and who she can be. And the fact that she has pretty much everything she needs to be that person. In other words, Allison was encouraging me to love my daughter in the present by means of the future that awaited her. And I have to say, it was pretty powerful stuff for me to remember that that's true, to remember what that was like in my own life and to think about how that would change me as a parent if I did that. And of course, you know that this is not just for kids and parents. This is for all of us as we live in whatever our present is with all of the longing that we feel, all of the anticipation for something more and something better. We too, we need to hear about our future and we need to hear about it often, not as a means of escaping from the present, but as a means of reshaping how we live and love in our present. And that's precisely what Isaiah does for God's people in this passage that we just read and heard together. He is painting a picture of our destiny. He's drawing our eyes away from the people that we are and towards the people that we will become. It is a beautiful picture, but he doesn't paint it just so we have something beautiful to look at. He paints 
this picture so that we will live in light of it right here and right now. He's really clear about this. That's what verse 5 is all about. He says, now that you know what's going to happen, live in light of the Lord right here and right now. So here's how this picture begins to be painted. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I know that sounds like pretty pedestrian stuff, like the words that you have to read over really quickly to get to the really meaty stuff, the really important stuff. Um, and if you do, uh, just read over those things quickly. If we just read over them quickly, like pretty much everywhere else in Scripture, it would be a big mistake because those words situate us into a very specific historic context that helps us understand. So follow me here. here here's what's happening with God's people when these words are written. It's around 700 B.C., And a nation called Assyria is the dominant political and military power in the world. And Assyria is basically carving up the known world for itself. Uh, At the same time, the two kingdoms of God's people, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they're coming out of this incredible stretch of prosperity and this incredible stretch of peace. But this peace, this prosperity, this great time looks like it's coming to an end because there is a threat on the northern part of the kingdom that Assyria is going to invade. So Israel, the northern part of the kingdom, makes a military pact with another country. They make a pact with Syria to fight the threat, and they are begging Judah, the southern kingdom, to join with them in that pact. And so a guy named Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he frantically is weighing his options. He could join with Syria and Israel, but this is what he thinks. We're all three going to get conquered anyway. So his other option is to send a bribe, a, a bribe directly to Assyria. He calls it a tribute, but it's a bribe. <laughs> he can send it directly to Assyria in the hopes that they would be spared, and that's what he does. And shortly after the money is sent, Assyria rolls into the north and the northern part of the kingdom of Israel falls. And now the people of Judah are really, really crossing their fingers. They're really hoping that this bribe is enough to do the trick and keep them safe. These are the people that Isaiah is speaking to. Now I'm pretty sure none of us here this morning are you know, weighing our military options because our bribe money to the king of Assyria might fall through. I doubt any of us are in that spot. But as sure as I am that we're not in that spot, I am just as sure about this, that every one of us here this morning knows what it looks like to face something and to think to ourselves, what am I going to do? How am I going to face this? And will God help me? And this is where we come back to those things that I mentioned before that we are facing. It could be a difficult situation that you're in in work. It could be someone in your family, a parent maybe who's aging, or a sibling who is wandering away from the family into stuff that you don't think is helpful. It could be your health. It could be the health of someone that you love. Maybe this is the time of year when you or maybe someone that you love struggles with depression and you can feel it, you can see it creeping in. You know what your thing is. And in those moments, I probably don't need to tell you this, a lot of things 
offer themselves to us for our trust. There are a lot of things that seem like they will be powerful enough to deliver us, to reward our trust, or at least distracting enough to take our minds off of this trouble that is in front of us for a little while. These are the lesser things that we put our trust in, the things that end up not being able to hold the weight that we place on them. These are the things that end up hurting us and hurting the people around us. What would we need, really, in those moments to instead believe that God is worthy of our trust, that he can handle our trust? Right? What would we need in those moments to believe that the grace of the incarnation, of Jesus coming to be one of us for us, that the grace of that act is enough for us, that the grace that he gives us through his people and through the word and through sacrament and prayer, what would it take to believe that that is enough and that we can trust? What would we need to not only believe that that's true, but to live differently in the present because we believe it's true? Well, that was the question that the prophet Isaiah was asking when God's people were trusting in bribe money. And his answer was to paint a picture of their destiny. To draw their eyes away from the people they were to the people that they would become. This is what he says. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, right now he's not interested in saying exactly when, in part because he has no idea exactly when. He just wants them to know that this day is indeed coming. And here's what Isaiah says will happen on that day. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, that's a remarkably beautiful image. It would have caught in the throats, I think, of the people that heard it for the first time. But we probably need a little bit of background to understand what it means. Here's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God's people went to meet with God and to one, and one another and to worship together. For God's people, the temple was the one place in all of the world where heaven and earth met. And what you need to know, not that I've been there, but I've been told, is that the temple is just on this little hill. It's not the highest place in Jerusalem. It's not even the highest place in the land. It's just this little rise, and the temple was built on this little rise. And the beautiful thing that Isaiah is saying is that one day, that little hill will be seen as the highest point on the planet. Isaiah is saying, listen, a day is coming when God will be so remarkably, so startlingly present with his people that all of the eyes of the world will be drawn to it and his presence there will tower over everything else. So you you can see, you can begin to see how this would chip away at the anxiety of God's people. This thing that they were feeling. They're staring down this real threat. They think that their, their hometown, that the place that's at the center of their faith and life, that, that this place is going to be razed to the ground and destroyed. But Isaiah is telling them there is a day coming when these exact fears that you feel will be turned on their heads. The city will not be destroyed. It will be lifted up. It will be established as the highest of the hills in the world. And it will happen because God will be remarkably present there. And then Isaiah says, listen, once it's lifted up, then all of the nations of the world will flow to it. 
This place is going to be so magnetic. It's going to be so compelling and breathtaking that streams of people will flow uphill to get there. The hordes will come and they'll say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go to the house of the God of Jacob. And these pilgrims are not going to be coming so that they can see the sights. They're not going to be coming so that they can get a little taste of power. They're not coming so that they can get some kind of mystical experience there. They're coming for this one bracing, simple-to-understand reason. Let's go there so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The whole world will come so that they can get to know God and learn from him in order to live their lives as they were created to live them. Now, before we get back to this picture that Isaiah is painting, I want to take a detour for a second. And I want to say that this image, the image of learning from God in order to walk with God, that this is the Christian vision of what it means to follow Jesus. So here's what I mean by that. I mean, Jesus was a great teacher, but he did not come to make students and he did not come to build a school. Jesus came to make disciples, and what he built was this community, our community, a community of messed up but forgiven people called the church. And that means that people who follow Jesus have got to be a people for whom learning is a lifelong pursuit, but it is never the end. Learning is never the end. Church, all of our prodigious learning is for nothing. It is for absolutely nothing if it is not grown into the flesh and blood of walking every day. And we get this turned around sometimes, and we mistake knowing a lot of stuff about Jesus or knowing a lot of stuff about the Bible. We mistake that for maturity. Knowing a bunch of stuff has absolutely no correspondence at all to maturity. But faith working itself out in love, walking with God and neighbor, that does. And we learn from God so that we can walk with him, so that we can learn and grow. This is what the people of the world will do on this day that Isaiah is talking about, this day of our destiny. Isaiah says that God is going to judge between the nations on his holy hill. And in his vision, this is what it means for God to judge between the nations. It's for him to administer the world in the justice for which he made it in the first place. It is for him to return to creation to the way that he always intended it to be. And when that happens, when the world is administered in justice, when God's judgment reigns, this brings peace. And so the weapons of war, like swords and spears, become hopelessly unnecessary. And Isaiah says that they will be made into tools for working the land, like pruning hooks and plowshares. And this is really, church, this is really worth thinking about. (laughs) Because this is always how peace comes. Peace comes when we submit our destiny to the judgment of God. Right? You know what comes when we set ourselves up as judges for ourselves and judges for the world? Chaos comes. But when we allow God to be the judge of us and the judge of the world, to administer it in the justice for which he created it, peace is what comes. 
I know this isn't how we usually think of judgment, but that's precisely why we need Scripture to crack our imaginations open and to change the way that we think. This isn't just a really good day that Isaiah says is coming. It's not just a really good stretch of a few weeks that Isaiah says is coming. This is a vision of the whole world being made new forever. God's remarkable, startling presence with his people will be like a beacon to humanity. Drawing people from the far corners of the world so that they can learn from God in order to walk with him in the peace for which he created the world. Isaiah is telling God's people, this is your destiny. You will be at the very center of this new world that God is making. So that destiny, right, it makes caving to anxiety and pinning all their hopes on a bribe seem pretty thin, right? Of course it does. That's the point. But of course, that's easy for us to say at a distance, looking back at Isaiah. What about in our own lives, facing whatever it is that we are facing? Right? Feeling like things are closing in on us and our options are scant. Right? When we're afraid that we might lose our work, that we might lose our job, the easy route to security might be to make ourselves look good at other people's expense. Right? When we're lonely and we feel that loneliness acutely, we might want to be tempted, we are tempted to default to running our relationships in ways that maximize our happiness. No matter what the cost is to others. Right? When we feel that depression creeping in, the pull of substances that numb us, the pull of endless distractions to take our minds away, these things are tempting. And you know what they are? They are all thin, measly bribes. So people like us face the same question. Who are we going to trust? What are we going to trust? We could try the same old things that we have tried in the past, those thin, measly bribes, this hope of a lame bribe. But what if we knew that we were made for something else? Wouldn't it be different if what we did and the way that we treated the people around us was controlled and ordered not by the reality that presses in on us in the present, but by the reality that presses in on us from the future, our future? What if we made our decisions based on the people that we know we will become, on the world that we know will become? And that is precisely Isaiah's invitation. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a beautiful vision. We live now in light of that future. And church, the good news for us is that we can see how this works in a way that Isaiah couldn't have dreamed of seeing how it worked. Right? He knew that the light of the Lord was going to dawn one day, but he didn't know when and he didn't know how. But we have seen it. We have seen it with our own eyes. The one who knows that we're scared to be alone. The one who knows the bad news that the doctor told us. The one who knows that we are in over our heads. Who knows our pain. Who knows all the stuff that we hope no one ever finds out about. That one is the one who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not dark, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, that light that Isaiah promised would come has come, and Jesus' cross and resurrection were the beginning of that new world 
that Isaiah envisioned. This incredible future has come into our present in ways that we can see, in ways that we can feel, in ways that we can touch right here and now, even before it is fully consummated. And that means, church, that we can and that we should live in the present in light of this future that is coming for us. The incarnation of Jesus. Jesus coming as one of us for us. It speaks directly to whatever it is that you are facing. So here's what I hope all of us will do during this season of longing and anticipation and hope. I hope that we will ask God together to show us how the light of Jesus' incarnation shines on whatever it is that we are longing and hoping for. I know that it isn't easy to do, but there isn't anything in our lives that it doesn't touch So it is there. Seeing these connections, like I said before, it takes prayer and thought and it takes talking to other people about it. It takes this deep reading of Scripture. So let's commit to be together in this during this season of Advent. I mean, if we could get to the other New Year's Day, right, the one in January... If we could get to that day and we could look back and say that we have seen past all of the kind of sentimental sheen of the season, and believe me, I love the sentimental sheen as long as that's not the only thing. Wouldn't it be great to get to that New Year's Day and look back and say, we have seen underneath into the mystery of things and we have seen how Jesus' incarnation speaks directly into our lives and our loves. If we could do that, we would be a happier and healthier and stronger people, ready to love God, ready to love our neighbors in the way that he has loved us. So in a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And in that prayer, there's going to be a couple of seconds to think about whatever that thing is for you and to name it. And we will name it together to God. And we will ask him to help us see and walk into that light. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these glimpses that you give us throughout Scripture of the future that awaits us, these glimpses that you give us of our destiny. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us to be a people who gaze onto those things with longing and anticipation and hope, not so that we can escape this moment that we live in now, but so that we can live and love differently in this moment right now in light of the future that awaits us. Help us to learn what that means together. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see clearly how the coming of Jesus speaks to that thing that we are longing and wondering and frightened and scared about or feel hopeless about. Father, we're going to take a minute right now to name what it is to you together. Father, you hear all of our prayers. Give us the faith to believe that you care more deeply about this stuff than even we do. (laughs) And help us to see how the coming of Jesus speaks to it. And help us to walk into that light together. 
Do this for our good and the good of the broken world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The good news that we've been called to walk in the light is that we don't do it alone, but that together we are to walk and join with each other in reminding ourselves of the good news of the gospel. And one of the small ways that we do this each week to remind ourselves